Lord, indeed, as we survey the wondrous cross, that we can't even fathom why you would die for us, outside from the fact that you reveal from Scripture that you have a love for us that we do not deserve. There is nothing about us that is worth saving. Yet by your grace and your mercy, because of what you've done on the cross, we could stand in peace, knowing that we've made right with you. Not because of our own works, because of what your Son has done. And we place our faith in him each and every single day, trusting him and knowing that one day we will be able to see our Savior face to face. Lord, help us never become bored or not excited about the cross, but allow our hearts to always be moved by it. Help us love you more each day. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, please open it First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 20 will be the text for us this morning. A relatively longer passage, but I think it will be helpful for us to get a bigger understanding of God's Word as we look through First Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 to 20. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers who abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourself. You submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as freemen, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. In 2015, the Washington Post wrote this article about how the Chinese government was cracking down on the behavior of their own citizens. Now, if you know about the Chinese government, you know that tracking the behavior of their citizen is not a new phenomenon. But what made this particular article fascinating to me was that the Chinese government at this time was controlling the behavior of their citizens as they are going to visit other countries, as they're up and abroad in other parts of the world. The Chinese people went to other countries and received a whole bunch of bad publicity when people were recording their behavior when they're on the plane or when they're in different countries. 
One instance, there was a group of Chinese individuals on a plane throwing hot water at the flight attendants. Another was a video of a man trying to pull out the emergency exit on a plane as it was going because he was impatient with all the delays. And there's just a host of all of these embarrassing behaviors. And interestingly enough, this wasn't some sort of outside criticism of those who were inside China. Rather, the Chinese government saw all of this and they were critiquing their own people. The Chinese government was so embarrassed by their actions that they tried different tactics to change them. They had tourism training that they were supposed to go to in order to know how to behave and conduct themselves in other countries. And they even took an extra step that when they returned, they even did public shaming to let people know that this person failed to represent us. And all this was so that the people in other countries can look at the Chinese nationals in a positive light and for the government to not get embarrassed by their, by their people's actions. And the point is clear, that if you go to other countries, you need to represent them well. And what should be more cringy and embarrassing than watching our own people misrepresent our country, it should be us seeing as Christians, seeing other Christians, or even ourselves, misrepresent the name of Christ. Our time here is just a journey, it's just a sojourn, it's a temporary residence, we do not belong here. We're meant not for earth, but are meant for heaven. We are called out by God to be God's people. First Peter, if you've been following along with us, it's, it's a book that's written to those that are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. These were people that were, because of their faith, were, were forced to move to different places and scattered throughout. And Peter, being a loving shepherd, wants to guide them with the word of God. He wants to instruct them in knowing the fact that they are all in a place that is unfamiliar to them, to remind them of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. That even though they are not in a comfortable environment, they can still glorify the Lord and, and, and to be close to him. And in doing so, allows them to find joy and peace. Uh, when I started this preaching project, the first sermon, I titled The, the Sojourner's Charge, and that's from chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, about the hope that we have, that we look toward forward to the day where we get to see and behold our Savior, the Savior who we've never seen yet, but we love, and we long to see him and be with him one day. And then we talk about how the sojourner's life from chapters 1, 10 to 16 and that we're, we have God's word and we should be holy people because our God is holy. He is distinct from the world. And if we claim to be children of the Most High as obedient children, then we need to look like God in every sense of the word. And then I talked about how believers, there's this war that we have within our flesh. And that what keeps us from the word of God is oftentimes sin itself. And I encourage all of us to, to take stock and just really look at our own heart to see where we are at. And the reason why there could be stunts in our spiritual maturity can be because we're holding on to sin. And today, we're looking at this passage about how we're supposed to conduct ourselves to outsiders. Remember, the, the question that I want to ask or want to answer uh, throughout this preaching series is, why does San Francisco need San Francisco Bible Church? And the answer is, is to win people to Christ. The, the, this city desperately needs the gospel. And we are here as believers, we need to see this as a, as a stewardship, as a, as a privilege, as an opportunity to represent Christ. But how can we do that? How do we 
win people to Christ. We want to win people to Christ by our Christ-like behavior. We want to win people to Christ by our Christ-like behavior. If we want to have a Christ-like behavior, we must be careful in how we conduct ourselves before a watching world. We want to win people to Christ. We need to have an excellent behavior in every sphere of our life. If we want to represent God's kingdom well and not be embarrassment to the Lord or bring shame or reproach to God's name, then we need to behave excellently. So this morning, I want to look at three spheres of spheres of people that we need to have an excellent behavior towards. And this is a very broad uh, topic because in terms of where we are, we know that, uh, yes, we're with unbelievers, we're before kings and masters, but I want to get into details on what that might look like in our life. So these are, here are the three spheres of people that we need to have an excellent behavior towards. The first is our behavior before unbelievers. Our behavior before unbelievers. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Although we didn't go over this uh, section earlier, in chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, I do want to just quickly summarize that in verse 9 tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that, we may, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there is a purpose for us that we as believers were chosen before the foundation of the world, and our purpose is to declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ. We tell others of how good our God is because of who he is. He saved us. He redeemed us. He ransomed us so that we can be made right with him. And then verse 10 tells us, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Peter, here in verse 10, was just telling us and reminding us as believers that we were at one point separated from God. We were, because of our sin, we were removed as far as the east is from the west. And but because of God's grace, our sin is, is moved as far as the east is from the west. Now we're reconciled to him. And the result of that is what he tells us here in verse 11. He tells us that we need to abstain from fleshly lusts. He begins verse 11 by calling them beloved, which is a very endearing term. He's talking about how these are his family, even though they're scattered all over, and most of these people are not blood-related to him, but he sees them as their family. We are the family of God, and every single one of us matters to each other. And Peter's trying to convey that with this one word, this one single term to tell them beloved, like my brother, my sister, my family. He's urging them, to be as, as aliens and strangers. This word aliens is, is actually where we get the idea of sojourner, meaning we are not from there. We're like a tourist. We're pilgrims. Someone that resides somewhere for just a little while but isn't from that area. It implies that you're just passing through. And this is who we are as Christians. And we know in San Francisco we see a lot of tourists. And you can recognize a tourist pretty quickly. You can tell when you just hear them talk. Their accent is different. Uh, sometimes they just seem like they're lost all the time. They're always on their phone. Well, I guess everyone's on their phone, but they seem particularly lost because they don't know where to really go. And sometimes you, they, you'll see, you'll notice the tourists may even try to dress up like us, but there's something off about them. It almost seems like they're, you know, just, they're just playing dress up. It's almost like a parody of how Americans dress. 
In the same way that it's obvious to point out a tourist, it should be obvious for the world to point out a Christian as well. Peter describes that we're also strangers. As another translation used the word refugee or exile. And these are people that don't belong in the, in, in the particular land. They're not from there. And how, however, if you look at these two aliens and strangers, it seems very paradoxical. Because a sojourner is dwelling there temporary, whereas a stranger is never fully belonging there. And that's what Christians are like. We're, we're neither here or there, but we are here on earth. But we don't belong in this space. Part of being a part of God's family is that we live like sojourners and aliens here on earth. We renounce our loyalty and our allegiance and our citizenship to the world, and now we belong to a heavenly one. This world is not our home. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait, for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not our home. Our passport is supposed to read heaven. This place where we are now is just a place that we're just going to represent him. We should, we should always be longing for another place. We should be always longing for another world. We should be longing for another home. And what makes us strangers in this world is the way that we deal with sin in our life. Peter writes, to, we are to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. There is a phrase uh, that we, uh, you might have heard of, is that when in Rome, live as Romans do. When elsewhere, live as they live elsewhere. That's by St. Ambrose. And although there is some practical wisdom to this term, we understand that that shouldn't be 100%. Yes, there are things that we need to adapt to, maybe things like clothing, yes, uh, even certain um, language we, and cultural things we do adapt to, but we don't adapt 100%. We don't assimilate completely to it. Because one of the things that Christians always need to do, even if the world doesn't, is to abstain from sin. This word abstain just means to refrain, to stay away from, to flee from. And Peter's trying to convey that we don't belong here and we don't participate in the sins of the world. Yes, there's this internal sin that goes on and the struggle that we have, but we don't participate in it when the world doesn't resist sin. They buy into the sin, they promote sin, but we as Christians, we stay away from it. And this is that sin which wage war against the soul. This speaking of our old passions and the lust that combat against our souls. As believers, there's always going to be this internal struggle that we have. Yes, we are new creatures, we have a new heart, we're regenerated in that way, but that does not mean that the fight with sin is over. It's an ongoing battle. This is why it uses the word waging war. It's not sparring, it's not practicing, it's not this short little bout. It's a long, continuous, strategic military campaign. Our flesh has that against our own soul. Our former lust does that. It combats against our new self. And each lust we have is a soldier that's attacking our soul. And when you meet another Christian, when we're at church, you realize you're looking at a living battlefield. Every one of us struggle with some sin to some degree. And there's a war between our flesh and the spirit, and all of us that are Christians will always have this ongoing war on the inside. And which is not easy. It is not easy, and it is tough. But the Lord will give us the grace to be able to live in a way that is pleasing to him. 
I mean, this is what Paul writes about in, in Romans chapter 7, where he has this internal struggle. And even if the Apostle Paul struggles with sin, and he talks about how there are days where he seemed to have victory and there are times when he fails, that's just a normal Christian life. And what a great God that we have, in fact, that he died for those sins even after we become a believer. He didn't die for just the sins of the past, the things that we've done, that we've committed in the past, but he also died for those future sins that we've committed. And every single one of our sins are covered and washed away by the blood of Christ. And that should motivate us to continue to abstain from every fleshly desire. Because of God's love towards us, that should drive us to not want to have, to have any sin in our life, to abstain from it, because those are the sins that nailed our Savior to the cross. Fellow sojourners, if you are fighting sin, you're alive in Christ. Be encouraged that no matter how hard things are, this war, this internal war that you have, will eventually be done away with. We should all do what is right, even if it's imperfect, and then we struggle through it. Yes, this war is long and continuous, but in relative to eternity, it's actually really short. But at the same time, if you are here and you are not struggling with any sin, then that is something that you need to be mindful of. You're not enlisted in God's army if, you don't, if you're not fighting against internal sin. Look at verse 12. It said, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentile, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The purity of God's people will proclaim the gospel in, in and throughout their lifestyle. Your purity doesn't earn your salvation, it just proclaims your salvation. This word excellent here is, is having a high moral standard. Speaking of every type of morally good thing that a non-believer sees as good, there are things that non-believers, when they look at you, when they see how you behave, that they can acknowledge that it's good. Even though they may not like your doctrine, even though they don't like the church that you're part of, even though they don't like the God that you worship, the fact that you behave in such a way that is good, they could at least acknowledge that fact. But why we live excellently has nothing to do with pride, but again, it's to testify to others about God. Notice that the thing that Peter talks about is behavior and, and not necessarily ministries. He does talk about good works later, but he's talking about your behavior. And that should be a warning to us that just because we do good things for our community, just because we do a lot of good ministry, that doesn't make us necessarily faithful to the Lord. Because you can do all the things like evangelism and caring for the poor, do all different outreach programs to children, but if you have a bad attitude towards, if you have a bad attitude as you're doing those things, it kind of undermines your testimony. You want to be someone that is faithfully representing Christ and, every, and if representing Christ well in the ministry that we have. So it's not necessarily about what you do, but who you are. People will read us more than they will ever read the Bible. People in San Francisco will not read the Bibles as much as they read the people in San Francisco Bible Church. And for some of you, and for some of the people in your life, you are the only Bible that anyone is ever going to read. They look at your life, they see that you profess to be a Christian, and you are going to be the only thing that they read. The result of living a morally excellent life is that it should win our critics. It should win those to Christ. Notice it says that so that in the thing in which they slandered you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observed them, 
Glorify God in the day of visitation. Being a Christian is not going to make you popular. And we need to be pure if we want to proclaim the gospel with our life. The world may hate our doctrine, they may hate our theology, but when they watch our attitude, our conduct, and our behavior, it will make them more interested in Christ Jesus. That's why at the end of this verse, it glorify God in the day of visitation. This should be our greatest desire to win those around us, that we're willing to be a little bit more patient with those around us because we want them to come to saving faith, that we want to be a little bit more gracious and kind and more long-suffering because we know that there are people who do not know Christ. And we don't want to get to the point in our life where we look back and regret wishing that we did a little bit more for the kingdom of God. Just wishing that if I was just a little bit more kinder and a little bit more Christ-like, that that person might be open to hearing the gospel. If we don't want to have those regrets, we need to be faithful in every area now. You have forgotten your mission if winning people to Christ is not a desire for you to be faithful. Your behavior matters. If you're a parent, you understand this. You want your kids to become a believer, so you do your best to live in such a way before them so that they can see that mommy and daddy loves Christ. If you're at work and you care about your coworkers, if you care about your friends, you work hard, you're diligent in all of those things so that, you can, so that they can see that, hey, this... For this individual, Jesus Christ actually matters to them. You live an an excellent life. So even though they may not like the things that you believe, your faithfulness to the Lord might draw them to them. That's why it says here, glorify God in the day of visitation. There will be people in your life that will come to saving faith. And when they see Christ, when they're before the Lord, they're going to praise the Lord for sending someone to represent Christ before them before they were saved. They're going to be thankful to the Lord, thank you for bringing that person in my life. That they, that they lived in such a way that, that showed the sweetness of the gospel. And that's what we want. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we really care? If you do not care, then that's, it will explain why you don't want to live excellently before others. But if you care about their salvation, if hell and heaven are real places to you, then you want to live in such a way that represents Christ well. You want to strive to live excellent before non-believers. Not only before non-believers, the second sphere of people that we need to have excellent behavior before is the kings in our life. The kings. Verse 11, uh, sorry, verse 13 to 17. Verse 13, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now the original readers here were cast out by Rome and were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And, and Rome would do this repeatedly to kind of make whatever group that they want to destroy feel weaker and weaker. It's a divide and conquer mentality. If there was a group of, of, of zealous people that want to overthrow the government, they would just catch all of them and scatter them throughout and so that their numbers would would be weaker, and they, they, so that they will be weaker as well, and they'll be demoralized. And, and the Christians were viewed in that light. They saw Christians as people that were a threat because they kept talking about the kingdom of God, and they thought they were incestuous because these people were married, but they called each other brothers and sisters, and they thought they were cannibals because they kept eating and drinking the, blood, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And they had this wrongful assumption of Christianity, so they thought, well, we'll just scatter them throughout. And that's what they did. 
The Christians were scattered throughout, and they were told by Peter here to submit to even to those governors, even to these kings that are crooked. Nero at the time was the ruler, and when he ruled, he was, I mean, the best word to describe him was this guy was a lunatic. He wanted a new backyard, so he burned down part of Rome, and he blamed the Christians for it. And he would light Christians on fire in his little, basically, area where he would practice his chariot runs. And the Christians were at a disadvantage because the king at the time hated Christians, and then the society and people around them were suspicious. Like, why were, you, why were you moved here? What did you do to make the Roman government scatter you abroad? They understood that Christians had this reputation that was very poor because of their faithfulness to the Lord. It was this uphill battle for Christians and for, for Christians to try to win people to Christ. And Christians back then and even today thought about this question that should they resist government even when rulers are treating them unfairly? And the answer that Peter gives, and I would argue most of Scripture gives as well, is no. You do not resist even those who are, treat, are mistreating you. Peter said that we must submit to the government. The believer are not placed here to overthrow government, but to establish a kingdom on earth that is not of this world. We pray for our government, and we live as civil citizens in this land. This is what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2 tells us. First of all, then I urge you that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Our first allegiance is not to the U.S. Constitution. Our first allegiance is not to the United States flag, but rather it is in heaven. Our loyalty is not to Caesar, but it is to Christ. And I know there's this tension because you probably have thought all of these what-if scenarios. What if we were in World War II in Nazi Germany? Or what if the government have these, all these overreaches? And it's very tempting for the Christians now to try to, and it is an expression now, to, to look at the government in our day and to, be, to view them with disdain and to, with disrespect and distrust. And I'm not saying you give your whole trust to the government. I'm saying that you need to trust God more than the government. And this may look good for those that, you know, you, if, you, if you see someone that rules over you that you align politically with, you might think, okay, that's the person I'm going to submit to. And if the person who doesn't align, you might say, well, that's a time to rebel. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that you have to trust and pull your, put complete trust in them. Rather, I'm saying you need to trust God more, that he is sovereign over all things, that we submit ourselves because of what the, the title is. We submit because we know that God is the one who establishes all authority. We often get so worked up over political parties that we forget who is truly in control. That is our God. For us as Christians, we need to trust the Lord and do what he tells us in regards to the government. We pray for them. We submit to them. And in doing so, it shows the world that we have faith and our trust is in the Lord and not in the government. It says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. God commands us to submit to the government. And one way to be a positive influence for the gospel is submission. 
And this word submit is it's a military term. It means to put yourself under. It means that there is someone over you that gives you direction and commands that you need to obey it. Submission implies obedience, even if it's unfair. I said every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, God is the one who establishes every institution. He is also the one that puts the people in those places. Although the institution is not perfect and at times even corrupt, we are called to submit unto the Lord by submitting to every institution that God establishes. And I, I know you're probably thinking, well, is there ever a time where we can rebel? Is there ever a time where we don't need to submit? And if you look at the totality of Scripture, there is, but those are more the exception and not the norm. I mean, the only exception are when the government tells us to do something that's contrary to God's word, or we tell us to worship someone that isn't Jesus Christ. Those are the, it seems like the only two places where we don't need to submit to the government. But in doing so, when those moments where they tell us to do something that goes against Scripture, and we say no, we're still willing to humbly submit to the consequences of those decisions. We may be punished because of our faithfulness to the Lord. And that's okay. We're humbly and willing to submit to that. This is what even later on in chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. See, when people persecute you for the things pertaining to the Lord, they are going to wonder, why are you willing to give up your liberties for this? Why are you willing to suffer consequences for this man that you've never met? And those are those moments where we say, because I love Jesus Christ, let me tell you about the Savior that I love. You need to see that there are moments where you rebel, but it's the rare exception. And the reason why we as humans like to rebel it's because we are rebellious in our nature. We are a people that loves to rebel. And again, we're thinking in terms of American terms here, like we like our freedoms and, individual, and our individuality and stuff. But that's different from back then when Christians were living, when Peter was writing. They didn't have the Constitution like we do. Their government was far worse than ours. But yet Peter tells them to submit to the worst types of government. When you are willing to obey the Lord, think about how Daniel, when he was commanded not to pray, or, uh, and he prayed, and he had to suffer the consequences for that. Or he t- they were told to bow down to, the, to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and they did not do that. And yet they still suffer the consequences for their obedience to the Lord. And that's the same thing for us as well. We may suffer because of our obedience to the Lord, but those are, those, those are the only areas where we where which we can rebel. They tell us to go against Scripture or go against God. Everything else in our life, we need to be willing to submit to. It's not just that we submit to, uh, to government or rules that are easy. If we look at even the life of Christ, Jesus Christ himself had to submit to unfair government. Jesus submitted to the same thing, which we'll look over the example of Christ next week. Jesus lived under the rule of 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 sinful rulers, of religious leaders. He was also under the Roman government, but yet he did not rebel against either of them. He never engaged in any act of civil disobedience and was silent when he was persecuted for doing the right thing. 
Look at verse 14. It's like how there's governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and praise of those who do right. And this is supposed to be what they're for. The government's supposed to stop evil and to praise those that do right. That's what their God-given position is. And although, yes, they're imperfect and flawed, but that doesn't mean that we cannot submit to them. We bring God glory when we submit to his word. And if his word tells us to submit to these government, then that is what we will do. Every time we submit, there is an admission that we believe in Jesus Christ. There is an admission that we believe that God is actually all-powerful and it's in control of all things. And this is here that it's for the punishment of evildoer and praise of those who do right. This shows against what the rules are supposed to do. And yes, they don't always do it. But yet that is, their, uh, that is what God instructs them to do. He said evildoers, and this is speaking of those who act violently or hurt other people. The government is supposed to stop those things and is supposed to punish. And this is the idea of retribution. The government is supposed to ensure that the, the civilians are protected. Now, obviously, our government and every government isn't perfect in this way. But that doesn't give us reason or excuse to not obey them. It says praise of those who do right. The government's supposed to elevate and praise those who are good citizens. And again, they don't do that as well. And that's okay, because we are still called to submit to them. Look at verse 15. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Peter wants us to know that it is part of God's will for us to submit to the government, not just to rebel against them. If God's will for us to obey them, even if it's if they are not on our side. Again, remember the context of the believers as they're reading this. They're, they're struggling too. Like these are the people that keep accusing us and slandering us. We're being kicked out by our family and our government. We're scattered. There's so much injustice going on. How can we still do this? And yet Peter reminds them that is the will of God. This is what God's will for you. God is the one who placed you in the situation with the rulers over you. And you're called to faithfully represent him even when it's not easy to do so. And the result is that we will silence the ignorance of foolish men. We know that the world, are, they, they're like the people in Nineveh during Jonah's time. They don't know their left hand from the right. They don't know what Christianity is really about. They, they, I mean, yes, our, our, I mean, the Christian influence here in America is slowly dwindling away, so there is some level of Christian knowledge. But what they know about Christianity is very shallow. These people are ignorant of God's word. But in submitting to them, and usually, again, submitting the things that we, it's okay to submit to, we silence them because they don't know what to say. They expect us to go against them, but we're willing to pay the taxes or, or pay those parking meter things. It, it surprises them because they think Christians as a group of extremists. But in reality, we're not. We, we're submissive to the Lord. Because we're silenced here is this idea of gagging someone or, or muzzling them to, to make them not be able to speak. They can say all they want about Christianity, but what they will understand is our actions. They may not understand why we do what we do, but when they look at our actions, it speaks volumes. My daughter just started soccer, and I told her, what's cool about soccer is that you can play the sport all over the world. Everyone knows the rules. You may not even know the language. You may not understand what they're saying. But when you go anywhere in the world, you decide to play soccer, there are certain rules that everyone understands, and there are certain levels of skill that people will also understand. And so it is with our good works. The world may not understand our language, they may not understand our culture, but when they see good works, when they see that they're willing to do 
good. They understand it. The world may criticize our doctrine, but if we are faithful of our life, they will be silent. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, Paul writes, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of, re- of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is what we were. We were a rebellious people at heart. But the Lord changed us so that we are submissive ultimately to the Lord. And, and how we practically show that is how we submit to those in our life. Notice that Paul, Peter writes in verse 16, it says, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. And it's weird because it seems like there's this, like this tension, like we're called to be free men, but we're slaves to the government in some ways. And I think here as free men, he's not talking about your, your, your rights here as a civilian here on earth, but rather he's talking about being free from the bondage of sin. If you understand that you are at one point enslaved to sin now, and you're, no, you're, you're unable to submit to the Lord, but now we're free. You're free from the bondage of sin. And I think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about free as in being free from sin. We're free in Christ. Free here has the ability to give us any ability to live according to God's word. We're free to not sin, but to obey the Lord. Unbelievers are not free to do anything for the Lord. Although they have this perception and self-delusion that they are free because they don't need to submit to God, but ultimately they're actually enslaved to their own sins. They don't understand Unbelievers cannot escape sin just as much as a falling man cannot escape gravity. We have the ability to obey the word of God. This is what chapter 1 verse 14 tells us. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Because we are now redeemed. Because we are now reconciled to God. We can now live freely for the Lord. But we, uh, the word act is... is is not in it. Uh, the act like free men is not in it. The trans, or at least in NES, it, does, is, is, it says it uses the word act like free men. But it's supposed to help us understand and kind of smooth out the translation here. But we are called to submit as if we're free. We're free to finally obey the Lord, and that includes submitting to the government. The freedom that we have allows us to look at situations objectively, meaning that there are Things that when we reject or disobey, they are, yes, there are exceptions to that. And most worldly rules don't fit in that category. We may not like the policies that go into play. We may not like the new legislations. But that doesn't give us excuse to sin. And that's what Peter is trying to get at. Do not use your freedom as a covering for sin. The pitfall of freedom is that we can abuse freedom. The Christians would often use their freedom and given. Uh, given to them and use it to sin against the Lord. I mean, this is Romans chapter six, verse one to two, right? Like, if, should I sin more then so that I can get receive more grace? And Paul said, "May it never be." And this is what Peter's trying to get at. You have this freedom to obey the Lord. Don't use your freedom as a justification to sin more. The people 
that know that since Christ died for them, and their sin, since Christ washed away all their sin, they try to take advantage of that by trying to sin more. And both Peter and Paul here are saying that this is not the Christian way. Peter says to do not use your freedom as a covering for sin. And the word cover is exactly what you think it means. It's like a sheet that you would put over something to cover it, to, to make sure that people aren't, can't see what's on the other side. And oftentimes, Christians will use the sheet of Christian doctrine to cover their own sin. In Scripture, the doctrine of freedoms always use, uh, is always speaks in terms of freedom from sin, not in terms of freedom to continue to sin. You and I have a freedom not to do sin anymore. We owe our existence to the Lord. And as sojourners, there's this, there, we understand that as we are free in a sense of we can actually say, this is something that I'll listen to and this is something I'm not going to because this is what God's word has to say. True freedom comes paradoxically as Christians live faithfully. We are free from following sin. We're free from the slavery of sin. Now we're slaves of the Lord. It takes thoughtfulness and wisdom to discern which one area in our life in the government is actually sin and where it's just our own preferences. It takes a lot of thoughtfulness to discern when we look at some new law. Is this something that actually is against the faith or is it something against my own preferences? On areas that are sins and, of course, are counter to Scripture, we obviously reject and disobey those things, and we are willing to humbly take those consequences. But for everything else, we need to submit, even if we don't like it. It said, this is here, but use it as bond slaves of God. The freedom in Christ brings us great joy in doing the right thing. You and I are supposed to use our freedoms to, uh, because of our relationship that we have with the Lord. We are free from sin, but we're still slaves to God. And our attitudes and motivation must be because we are slaves to God. Our king watches over all of us. Our king meaning the king of kings. He watches over all of us. And the worldly kings, they can, they can abuse us. They can bend things against us. They can be evil in all that they do. But the faithful soldier in the world, uh, we understand that even though that we are un- we're run by terrible rulers, we're not called to rebel, but to humbly submit because this shows our trust in the Lord. Notice verse 17, it talks about how honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is it's like basically Peter's summary of all the different people that we're going to encounter. Honor all people. This is exactly what you think it means. The word honor is to give respect, to show them honor, to give them, to, to respect them. And when you disrespect one that is in government or people around us, sometimes we forget that even terrible rulers are made in the image of God. We love to blast our political opponents. We love to say things about people that follow different political persuasion. We have to demean those types of people. But we forget that these people are also made in the image of God. And because of just that very baseline understanding, we need to honor them. We don't have to agree with everything that they say, but what makes Christians different is that we respond to those that live differently differently. We care about them because we, have, we should have compassion for them. We see people lost in their ways or they're holding on to things of the world and we should try our best to lovingly correct them. Not in a way that's supposed to demean them, but with honor and respect. Is there anyone in your life that you can think of that is hard to honor? I mean, whether it is most likely, you know, political year, voting year is next year, so then you know, election year, so there's going to be a lot of people that you're going to see online or on the, on the news about you vote for this person, that. 
Understand that they may say really foolish things, but you still need to honor them because they're still made in the image of God. And this is how our Savior is. He honored all people, even people that seek to hurt him. God desires all people to be saved, and that is our motivation as well. If, if our hope is that even for those political people to be saved, we should be praying for them. We, they may think of some policy that just seems very bizarre, but it's only because they're lost and they don't have Christ, and that should give us an overwhelming compassion for them. We should be praying for rulers and that this evil tyrant, even they can be saved. I mean, think about Nebuchadnezzar. He was this horrible king to the Jews during the Babylonian exile, but God was willing to save him as well. And we need to trust that the Lord could save even the most wicked ruler. We need to honor them because even those people are made in the image of God. Notice this said, love the brotherhood. This is speaking of other believers. Love those that are in the church, that, that there's something special in the, in the fact that we gather together, that we have different fellowship groups, that we live life together. We are a family of God, and we need to love one another. Peter is the only one that uses this word, brotherhood, and uses twice here to describe the church. This is not speaking of not loving unbelievers, but that there is a unique love for those in the faith. We need to have a genuine love for the church of Christ. We need to keep loving the entire church. Every genuine Christian have a genuine love for, the, for, the, for one another in the church. No one that can say that they love Christ, they cannot say, no one, say that they, no one can say that, they, oh, I'm a follower and lover of Christ if they, they do not love the church. How do you talk about the church to your unbelieving family and friends or coworkers? How do you give to the church? How do you serve the church? How often do you pray for those in the church? How, do you pray for, how often do you pray for our missionaries all around us? The church, all of us, not just here in San Francisco, but even all the churches like mine that hold to the true gospel, they are all our family. And when Christians love each other, oftentimes the world will take notice. And that's what Jesus said. The world will know you by your love for one another. Notice verse 17, it said, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God. This is, this is fearing. And I think sometimes we like to kind of dumb it down a little bit by thinking fear as respect, and there is aspect of that, but the word fear is phobia. And if you understand who God is, there's going to be a rational fear because he is in control of all things. You, it, there's a reason why at a zoo that they put all animals in cages and behind very strong glass because you're, they, they know that if you let those things down, that they'll eat you. There's a fear, a natural fear. That's a fear that we need to have for the Lord because he knows all things. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He is everything that the Bible describes. There needs to be a fear to worship him. And when you realize who God is, you have no other choice but to be fearful of him. The more you know God, the more fearful you must be because you understand who he is. Last phrase here, honor the king. This sounds familiar. It sounds like the same, it's the same word that I used earlier. And again, this is Nero here. He's the, he, they're telling, Peter telling the Christians to honor Nero. And the leader doesn't have to be an honorable man before you honor them. Why do we honor our leaders? Because of the position. We honor the position that God has placed them in. God made that position. He'll fill those people in there. This is what Romans 13 talks about, how God has established government for this particular purpose. And we're supposed to respect and honor the position there. 
Again, election year is coming up, and you'll see how non-believers on both sides will react to one another. But the Christians should be different in the way that we respond. Whoever wins next year, it doesn't matter. We need to honor them because that is, the, that is what is pleasing to the Lord. And when there are terrible rulers, do you believe that God can even use wicked men for his glory? Right? This is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. What man meant for evil, God meant it for good. And we need to have that eternal perspective in order to, ha- to behave excellently before the kings. And the last fear of people that we are going to have, that we need to think about is our behavior before our masters. Behavior before masters. Uh, verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. It is for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with, with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, and this finds favor with the Lord. Understand slaves or servants here. Back then, most of the Roman population were slaves. About two-thirds of them were slaves. And they were all under the, really the, the, the mercy of their masters. If they have a good master then they'll be treated well. If they have a terrible master, they're going to be treated poorly. In fact, what makes Christians different was there were some Christians that were slave owners. And Paul gives them instructions about how you need to treat your slaves well because you understand your master is God above. And you need to be willing to treat Christian slaves. You as a Christian slave master need to treat slaves differently. And how does this apply to us because we don't have this type of institution well, I think just looking at it, we understand that the closest thing to our time is our employment. Because even slaves back then, they weren't slaves like American slavery. Like American slavery was taking people with a particular ethnicity. Back then, everyone could be slaves. I mean, two-thirds of the population were slaves. And some of these slaves, and most of the Christians at the time, were slaves. So they're working for these people, and they're working not for a lifetime, but they're usually like a contract of how long they need to work for their masters. So I'm speaking, if you're wondering why I'm using things like talking about your job, it's because I think the slaves here would be equivalent to that in our modern day. And for these slaves, they're called to be submissive, and that's the main verb here, to put yourself under, to listen to them. And it's that God's expectation for believers is to submit to their master. It's something that you continually put yourself under to the authority that's in your life. This word respect, it says respect your same word that was used in the last verse. It's respect the authority over you. And it said, in all respect, meaning every aspect. Now, I know at work, it is very tempting for us during breaks, or even when, our, when we go on our phone, to talk bad about our boss. You know, we, we, we ha- they have this terrible meeting, and then we gather together at the water cooler or Starbucks, and we talk about what terrible decisions that our boss just made. You understand that in those moments, you're not showing the respect that they deserve. And God sees it. Your boss may be completely unaware of how you think about them. But what should startle you is that God knows. He knows what's going on in your heart. And if this is you, you need to repent of that. Because God sees it. Even when your boss is unreasonable and unfair and unjust, this doesn't mean that you, you, know, that doesn't mean you have to like it, but you have to respect the position that they hold. Because even your boss is placed there because God has given that boss to you. He's given you that job. He's placed the people over you. And it may seem difficult, but being a soldier of Christ demands you to respond and react differently. They may, re- may, they may treat you like a tool, 
But God is using this situation as a tool to make you more like Christ. Why? Look at verse 19. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. If you want to grow in your faith, you need to learn to suffer like Christ, especially with bad rulers. And again, think about it. Every ruler that Christ was under was a bad ruler. God knew, or Christ knew exactly what the right decisions are, what the morally right thing to do is. He knew he was objectively the right person for the job. He knew everything. But yet he humbled himself and willing to submit to these rulers. We cannot say that. We may not know how to run a business even though we're criticizing them. When we think we know better, we complain, we grumble against them, we think we will do better. But we might not be able to. We don't have that perspective. But Christ does, and Christ has that perspective, yet he's still willing to submit to terrible rulers. And this is why it finds favor with God, because we're, mo- we're most like Christ when we submit to those that mistreat us. This command is not, is not based on feelings, it's not based on circumstances, it's not based on emotions, but a command for us no matter what the circumstance is. The Bible is not a book on how to live in an ideal world. It's a book and teaches, teaches us how to live in this world. And we need to obey God in all circumstances, and that includes our workplace. I want you to turn over to Titus chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. Chapter, cha- Titus chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. Paul writes this. Paul urges bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not proliferating, but showing all good faith. And the result is this, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. When we are submissive to the, our masters, when we are, to those that are, are over us, it's, the result is that they will love, and they will see our doctrine, and they will be drawn to it. Our doctrine becomes more beautiful when we are willing to submit. When we work, we're complaining less and we work faithfully. Some of you are working at home. You need to be diligent. Know that God is watching you at all times. Jump back to First Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is there when you sin and are harsh treated? You endure with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. This is a great question. In the first part, it's a really great question that if you do what's right, you suffer for. If you suffer for it, then you know, if you do something wrong, you suffer for it. Then you deserve it. But on the opposite end, if you are doing what's right and you suffer for that, and you endure. This finds favor with God. Back then, the slaves, when they would go into their homes before they were believers, they would go into a home. And every slave had to do this. If the master was not a Christian, they would have to bow down to that idol. And most slaves, before they were saved, they would do that. They walk into the home, they'll bow down to their, those idols in the home, and then they'll go back and do the work. But when they become a believer, and they go back to the home, they see this idol, and the master tells them, you need to bow down to this idol. And, the, and that slave decides to say, no, I worship Jesus Christ now. And they get beat for it. And, they, they, and then they still have to go back to the work and without grumbling or complaining. This is the type of life that the slaves had at the time, that they don't compromise those faithful Christians then and hopefully for us now, that they don't compromise on things that are essential, but they're willing to give and willing to even take the consequences for it. And the reason why that is is because God rewards the faithful. It says that God finds favor 
in us when we endure those things. You may lose your job because you don't comply with pronouns, with the pronouns that, that people are given. You may be punished for associating yourself with Christianity. You may be punished for being part of this church. And you may not get that promotion that you want. You may even lose your job. Your life may not turn out the way that you like because of your devotion to Jesus Christ. But know that God sees every single injustice that goes on in your life. And he will reward you for your faithfulness. And as sojourners, we need to have that eternal perspective. That even though we lose the things that we may want in this life, that our life did not go the way that we like, we know that we have an eternal life in Christ. That we have this eternal hope that one day everything will be made right because God sees it and he finds favor in those who suffer for doing the right thing. Christ needs to be the center in everything that we do. And no one humbled themselves more than Jesus Christ. Humility is based on the position that you come down from. For most of us, when we get demoted, we go from maybe one rank to one below, or maybe two ranks. But Christ, he was on the, he was at the right hand of the Father. He came down to this lowly earth to die a sinner's death. Jesus humbled himself the most to the point where he's willing to give up his life. I mean, he, he struggled, and he never fell into any sin. And if you and I struggle before a watching world, remember Christ. Remember how he behaved in this fallen world. He demonstrated true humility when he came into this world and lived among sinful people. He was always submitting, and he never fought back, and this is what pleased the Father. Look to Christ. He was an example in how he behaved in every area of his life. And we'll look more about Christ's example next week. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to be humble people, to be willing to submit to, your, to the, the, the government that you establish, even the worldly masters and even to unbelievers, that we understand that the people that you place in our life and the circumstances that we're in, we are in it because you allow it. And may we be faithful sojourners in that way, having an eternal mindset and not uh, having this eternal mindset allowing us to, to motivate us to even bear suffering for your name. Lord, may we have a, have a changed heart that, that is similar to your son as opposed to our former flesh. Give us humility, Lord, and may we do all things and behave in such a way that would give you all the glory. In your son's name I pray. Amen.